Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and my new film, A Little More Flesh 2, is nominated for three shockies, which is very exciting. Uh, and I am here for Dan's choice for this fortnight, Invasion of the body snatchers now dan why did you want to do this absolute masterpiece of a film this fortnight well the answer's in the question <laughs> it's an absolute it's an absolute masterpiece it's one of the first arrow uh, blu-rays i owned actually oh, okay um i mean you know, i've still got some pre-blu-ray dvd stuff um but i think this might be one of the first blues I, I put my hands on you can tell it's one of the earlier titles because the the menus are all different <laughs> yeah 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 no it's just amazing it's amazing and it's slightly odd as well in that it's an excellent remake um that's it it's just great <laughs> uh, it really is and um for those who are uninitiated it is going to be quite difficult to talk about this one without spoilers especially as like the final shot is so iconic but we're going to do our best and yeah dan is going to give you the plot of uh invasion of the body snatchers 1978 because it is very different to 1956 dan yes take it indeed away. uh so as far as i can tell from the no research i did invasion of the body snatchers 1978 was paid for by an american corporation trying to get you to eat more courgettes <laughs> uh, uh, and so it's essentially a fear-mongering piece about huge courgettes causing all sorts of problems in American society. Uh, and the takeaway at the end of the movie is that you should eat every vegetable that you see immediately. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, that is completely the main thrust of the piece. Um, there's even a scene in which one character force-feeds a pepper to another character exactly, um, to really drive that point home. So, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much wraps it up. Um, recommendations based on this film, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so, in seriousness, Invasion yes. of the Body Snatchers is a uh, about as 70s as you can get sci-fi i it's got the sort of the grim grime and and sort of like bleak outlook of 70s genre cinema which i love so much it has a almost uh, like a sort of thriller structure like a, actually like a lot of sci-fi did where it's about you know sort of one man trying to or in this case one man and then eventually a small group of people trying to warn people in general about an impending problem only to be sort of cassandred uh, no one believes them. Um, in this instance, it's a, uh, a spore-based or a plant-based alien life form that seems to have landed on Earth uh, and is, through various amazing special effects sequences, replacing humans. Um, and Donald Sutherland and his gang uh, are trying to warn people about this. There you go. Perfect. And just from that description alone, I feel like I, I've got a sense of the direction that at least one of your recommendations is going to go in um we'll see if it's sport related you or might not be right <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah um I, I absolutely love this film very very happy that you chose it i think it, it is not only uh, uh, a treatise on why we should eat our veg it's also a very very current 
I, well, basically, I, I think this film would work in any decade. They could remake it in any Absolutely. decade and the message would still be there because it kind of cuts to the quick of a fundamental problem with humanity. And I think we'll probably get onto that a little bit later. But oh, yeah. I, I'd like to start out, though, by talking about the early moments of this film oh. because it's just fucking it's, amazing from like, yeah, go on. It's such a, it's so lean. Yeah. Like it's it's one of those films where like the first time you watch it, it's great, you'll love it. Like the performances are fantastic, the it's stylish, it's pretty unique in its aesthetic. Like there's loads for you there the first time. But the second, third, fifth time you watch this film, and I'm sure you will, uh, if you haven't already, somehow. Like, there's so much there. Nothing is wasted. It's so efficient. Everything that's going on in the background, every sound, every, like, tiny bit of background sound, everything is for the greater purpose of the of the film as it builds towards its third act. Well, it's that's so it. fucking tight. It, it's one of the rare kind of alien movies where, like, from the first shots, you feel like you're in an alien environment. It feels genuinely other if that makes sense um and and that goes into the whole style of of kind of the opening kind of 20 minutes or so because the the ambient music the incredible sound design the the design of the flowering pods themselves and um yeah just even in you know the shot choices they kind of unnerve you or, or, or make you look at the world as though you're an alien kind of visiting san francisco like there is that incredible shot where we see uh, a couple reflected in in the glass of a kind of glass door window thing um yeah. and they're kind of out of focus but the the green plants are in focus and kind of overwhelming them and we've also got two emotionless white statues that also your attention is kind of drawn to i mean talk about humans (laughs) visual storytelling it's it's like everything's there it's a masterclass. it really is and and the whole kind of style feels so claustrophobic because you're shown odd things from odd angles yeah i just love the way this film is shot yeah, it's it's beautifully photographed. It's it's beautifully photographed and it's beautifully visually conceived. Yeah, the visual language of the movie is really really tight, um, all the way through. There's loads and loads of POV stuff, uh, which really sort of puts you in the space mm. um, very early on. And because there's a lot of POV stuff, there's a lot of people looking directly into the camera, looking into the eyes of the person whose point of view it is, which yeah. is quite unusual in film, um, at least not in you know in non-found footage cinema. Yeah, like what you were saying about the unease, the otherness of it all. Like all the way through, you you wonder how far it's already gone. And especially if you think of it as arguably a, a sort of quasi-sequel to the first one rather yeah. than just a, a reimagining of the, of the source text, then like you could imagine that things are actually much more underway than, than is explicitly stated, especially with all of the... Like just the little details that you like, I I got stuff in this, especially through the extras that I'd I'd still not noticed. There was still new stuff for me in it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's just there's so many sort of odd choices, especially early on, like that shot of um, the telephone wire going back into the wall with like you know yeah. the, the the sound design. Like that shot shouldn't be unnerving. It also probably you know what is that for um well i guess it's to 
remind us of how kind of weird the world is, if that makes sense, how kind of alien our environment is, how things that you kind of take for granted are kind of odd through other people's eyes. I'm not sure because it obviously doesn't forward the plot in any way. It's quite arbitrary, but it just adds to this general feeling of unease. Yeah, I mean, the director says that he likes how objects we ignore or take for granted when examined become unusual or uncanny. Yeah. And there's that, there's one with a chair, someone gets up out of a chair and the camera lingers on it as it just sort of turns empty later on. Like that kind of thing. The film's peppered with that kind of stuff. And it, it is all about like holding on things maybe slightly longer than you'd expect uh, like the weird like when people talk they talk all over each other but you get these weird pauses as well where even the the, the sound design kind of drops out and yeah. actually a lot of it's about reduction a lot of it's about what they take away they build this world and then slowly they strip away elements of it throughout the throughout the film most notably with the sound uh, and the and sort of the floral design of the movie but it's very much about taking away the things that we recognize as being our world yeah yeah, I mean, I love, I love, love, love the sound design. It's kind of, the visuals are amazing, obviously, but the sound design is, is what really makes this movie kind of a waking nightmare. It's just so chilling. And obviously Ben Burt, who'd just done Star Wars, you know, combined all sorts of hideous stuff for the iconic scream that permeates the movie. And, and yeah, you talk about the kind of overlapping conversations and stuff. And what this film kind of reminds me of most... This isn't a clue to my recommendations, but it really reminds me of a Robert Altman movie. It's like, obviously, Altman did loads of different genres. He kind of jumped from, you know, genre to genre, really. Um, But this really does feel like Altman doing sci-fi, like the casting and just the, the style of it. But it's like someone's made an Altman movie and just made the camera go wonky. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's fucking amazing. It's such a great film. One of Arrow's best. And and really good extras on the disc as well. But we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, there's plenty more to talk about within the film itself. Um, we touched on the relevance of it. Um, how do you interpret it, the, the 78 version? What, what do you think it's saying about society? Well, so, I mean, the, unfortunately, I kind of... I've you know having watched every single frame on this disc mm. i've heard you know all the official opinions i mean I, I i think it's about how when left unchecked dangerous ideals can subsume society and i yeah. think it's it's deliberately a little oblique the an interesting thing i heard about the original which is you know most people know that the the first adaptation as ostensibly an allegory for the red menace you know the, the communist threat and the director of that was was quite a sort of republican character but like what i didn't realize was that the screenwriter was quite a lefty and he uh, saw it as an allegory for the the sort of the mccarthyite right-wing consumption of america and so even from that first one like within the creative pool there was a, a pulling because it is such a transferable movie it's yeah. it, you know the message is so uh well timeless like you said it fits every decade not that i think every version of it is very good but but this version is exceptionally good and actually i i felt it fitted and i'm sure you considered the same thing it fitted the sort of the republican swell and particularly the sort of alt right republican swell in the states and how there was this sort of 
unpleasant sort of racism that felt emboldened through like public acknowledgement and suddenly boiled to the surface and this movie very much plays with the idea that there's this nefarious thing happening up beneath society that isn't observed and that as soon as the numbers tip then they can be super bold about it yeah i could yeah i completely agree with that basically anything that kind of dehumanizes is dangerous and any kind of group that removes your empathy is dangerous but kaufman talks about his intent being about the uh the influx of the of silicon valley on california and how this sort of like commercial modern technology and new way of thinking new commercial thinking was overshadowing the free love like light uh, sort of slightly hippie uh, old mm. version of California and that was what was in his mind I literally cannot see a single yep. grain I am, <laughs> a single I speck. entirely agree <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but I mean, as, uh, as Philip Strick said it's an allegory for whichever totalitarianism is annoying you the most <laughs> the, the one extra I watched was um, that discussion between Kim Newman Ben Wheatley and Norman J. Warren it was fantastic um and it was the first one i watched and it was what made me stop watching the rest before doing the podcast i'm going to watch everything else after we've done this podcast because they were saying things that i had planned to say on the pod so that was uh annoying to only me but i I would like to get your thoughts on on one of the talking points they raised which I, i agree entirely sam by the way I get very cross when people on podcasts make like notice things that I want to point out. <laughs> when people on uh, on extra features notice things that I want to point out. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, uh, especially if it's something that you thought was quite clever. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, uh, Kim, Ben, and Norman are all in- incredibly intelligent and and yeah. lovely. Uh, so, yeah, the thing I kind of wanted to expand on with you specifically was the idea that this was kind of the birth of the 80s style effects led science fiction picture or even the birth of 80s special effects um, full stop. What are your thoughts on that? Because obviously this was 78 and yeah, those effects are pretty incredible. Yeah, there's some amazing stuff in there. I think it's the Berman family were doing the makeup effects in it, and I was sad that the the act, the very good special effects feature on the disc didn't have the Bermans involved. But but yeah, no, I I wouldn't say it was the birth of the '80s. I mean, partly mm. because actually I think that the '80s aesthetic is like what was actually the '80s aesthetic and what. I'm probably thinking of as as that what they're referring to are actually quite separate. And while yes, I think this gave because this was comparatively low budget for a studio picture, um, and they obviously put a decent amount of money into the effects, be it pyrotechnical, optical, miniature, you know, makeup, and and the film reaps the rewards of that. It's a very good looking movie, and with you know a few aging problems, the effects are still very very solid. But I think that the trajectory was already on its way. I think what it did was it, and they, I think they either talk about this in that conversation or it's, or it's re, uh, mentioned in one of the others, because I watched them all in a single sitting, so they right. blurred together. But the, the, as far as the studio was concerned, Star Wars came out and suddenly sci-fi was a big thing. Mm. And so they're like, well, let's just do loads of sci-fi. <laughs> 
And so even though actually Star Wars isn't... And yeah, no, Kim definitely talks about this. Star Wars is by and large not really a sci-fi film. It's, mm. it's, it's wearing the facade of a sci-fi film, but it's an adventure film, it's a Western, it's, you know, it's a samurai movie, it's all those other things. It's not really a sci-fi. Um, it's just that you know the horses have jetpacks. So otherwise... It's I haven't seen that edition, but... Go on. <laughs> well, they they uh, they painted over the uh, the horses <laughs> with the uh, Land Cruisers. So, oh, brilliant! Yeah, <laughs> more retconning from Lucas. But but yeah, so I think that actually what happened was Star Wars happened, and suddenly it's like, oh fuck, genre film can make a load of money. Star Wars and mm. Jaws, basically. And so yeah, this has got some great body horror stuff in it. But I but I think that that was more of an inevitability. That doesn't mean it's right. not a very important rung on that ladder, not a very important point on that trajectory. But uh, but I don't know if that is the big influence that it had on film. And it it feels like it had quite a big impact on Wheatley. I I don't. I mean, I haven't seen uh, In the Earth yet, and obviously it's out in the states uh, uh, and all the rest of it. Does that have any kind of body snatchers crossover, do you think? I mean, In the Earth is a pretty solid spiritual successor to Field in England. Right. And while it does have a few little moments of body horror in it, it's I, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a particularly body snatchers aligned film. Right. And Ben obviously loves body snatchers. Otherwise, you know, why would he be in that extra feature? But it's certainly nothing that came up while we were making the movie. But no, I mean, um, when I say it, it kind of had a big impact on him, I just see like little bursts of it in his work. Like I feel like Kill List even weirdly has some kind of body snatches. Oh yeah, no, I, I can. Well, there's there's certainly some sort of some double stuff going on in Kill List, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, exactly, and the claustrophobic feel of it and some of the kind of the sound design and stuff. I don't know. It just, it's really interesting, but yeah, should we, should we get into recommendations based on the film? Cause I've got a bit more of this kind of thing to talk about, but do you, do you have any more on the extras? Cause obviously you did sit down and watch the whole lot. So, um, and yeah, normally I, mean, I do, but, um, like I say that, that one extra stopped me in my tracks and I'm like, we're not going to be able to argue if, if we've both watched everything. Um, and this <laughs> felt, felt like a good argument one. Um, but yeah, Dan, what else do you want to highlight from the extras? I mean, to be honest, they're just, they're all good. Uh, the yeah. effects making of, while I would have liked a little bit more detail, a little bit more coverage of the makeup stuff is really good. They talk about the, uh, like all the reverse frond sort of mycelium stuff. They talk about the, the starscapes and the opening, like sort of spores traveling across the, the, you know, on the, on the winds of space. Mm. Uh, the, um, uh, dissecting the pod is a, a lovely interview with Annette Instord, I think her name is. She's the head of undergrad at Columbia and wrote the book on, wrote a book, the first book, on the director, hmm. um, on Kaufman. She hmm. was uh, my wife Jen's uh, teacher at, at Columbia when she was there. And I, I said, Jen watched the extra with me and she's like, oh my God, it's Annette. Uh, apparently she's unbelievably cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's really, she's really insightful. She's really interesting. And she's, uh, she's a big fan of Kaufman in general. And she, uh, I, I, I recommended um, Failsafe a couple of episodes ago. Uh, and I was talking about it again yesterday um, and saying that, you know, the problem with Lumet is that he is, he's not a traditional auteur and that he doesn't leave a stamp on something where you go, oh, that's Lamette. 
you know he his mm-hmm. thing is is getting the best performance out of the actors and then he kind of lets them do their thing he makes cool and economical choices and then gets amazing performances out of the actors um and something that annette says about kaufman is that again he doesn't fit into the mold of a of an auteur because he would move between genres so well and the way he would direct them would suit the film rather than be drawn from his personal well and actually that's something ben talks about in that discussion with kim and norman is you know he's saying oh yeah he doesn't stick to to one genre and actually you know that was filmed i think back in 2007 and you know we've gone however many years past that and ben is very similar ben you know while there are moments and and little tweaks where you go okay well that's very Ben Wheatley but actually he's been very broad in his in his uh, choices you know whether it's comedies horrors period films uh you know literary adaptations he's been very broad in his remit as well and I think that actually some of yeah some of the most exciting directors don't necessarily immediately sing out to you as it being their film um, from the screen because they are doing it in a way that serves the movie best. And I think that's definitely what Kaufman was doing with this one. Yeah, there's uh, <clears throat> a couple of points I'd like to pick up on that. Wheatley does say in that part of the, the discussion that it's, to him, reflective of a love of cinema, um, yeah. th- that desire to, to kind of jump from genre to genre. And I, I mean, this is my own personal theory that I've been cultivating for a long time, which is that I believe that Ben is... Uh, creating his very own Criterion Collection shelf. Um, All of his movies reflect some aspect of the Criterion Collection. I'm not quite sure how that's going to apply when he does the Meg 2, though Armageddon is part of the Criterion Collection, so possibly that's the logic he's following there. But yeah, that is my theory, that he's compiling his own Criterion Collection. But yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I do kind of prefer directors who do have a distinctive style and i think the general public does as well um, well it's it's certainly identifiable i think yeah. that, you know the general public might love films by directors who don't have that like big rubber stamp of aesthetic but they don't necessarily know that that's who they're seeing exactly so so it definitely makes like you know you don't get like a film from on the on the poster unless that's going to sell tickets mm. and it's only going to sell tickets if it if it's essentially shorthand that the audience can use to discern what they're getting yeah yeah so and and the thing is you know we we've talked about so many filmmakers uh on this podcast whose work we both love who do absolutely have that rubber stamp um mm. i mean argento is a good example where you know there's the the set pieces and you know whatever the way he shoots stuff barva's another one like mm. these guys are very very much like doing their own thing like mm. they've got a stamp that m- means you can go okay i know who that is so you've got the same you know normally the same musical uh people doing the soundtrack so there's that helps as well like same stylistic stuff argento's really into tech and techno cranes and all that kind of stuff like wire cams in suspiria or that mad thing from uh uh it's tenebrae isn't it the crane that goes all around the house yeah so like you yeah they've they've got their stamp but but I would say that the freedom of being away from that, of being able to to do something where there's the audience are into it because of its quality, but aren't necessarily 
predicting or second guessing stuff because of the director can lead to a purer narrative experience like a purer cinematic experience again something we've talked about a lot is our love of korean cinema because of its ignoring of the sort of genre divisions of the west uh, and while you know as we learn more about the individual directors from Korea, we, we start to see, you know, tropes and themes that, that emerge within a director's work. I, I, I still think that that lack of predictability is something that makes films very exciting, at least for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think that styles necessarily makes... I don't think it necessarily makes things predictable. Like, yeah, fair. you know, Kubrick had a very, very, very strong style, but each film is individual and unique and surprising and i would almost quibble with that description of lumet as not having a style um because one of the themes that he's kind of brought back to time and time again is claustrophobia and i feel like he uses the techniques to really hone in on that you know like you look at 12 angry men and and the lens choice in that and yeah the kind yeah, of yeah yeah uh, anyway, we're, well, we're the, fact they physically, now. <laughs> the fact that they physically made the set smaller throughout yeah. the shoot. <laughs> yeah, but, and combine but, that with, but, with the lens um, gradation yeah. as well. Yeah, but but I think I do. Th- but that's but I think that that is a choice made because it serves the story rather than because he does that every time. And well, well, here's the difference. I believe that he's drawn to stories that have that within them. And yes, the choices serve that, but. I, I think that kind of theme is in pretty much everything. Fair. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I mean, it's not like I'm saying he's Wes Anderson. And well, yet, you can see a single still and immediately know who it is. Ex- exactly. Um, exactly. Or Tim Burton or whoever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, we've gone way off track here. Should we go uh, on to recommendations based on the film? Yeah, let's do that. Do you want to go first or should I go first? I'll go first this time. Okay. Um, I've, got a, I've got a backup anyway. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of backups too. Speaking of auteurs, my first recommendation comes from John Carpenter and it's uh, another alien invasion movie that's an allegory for something else. I have gone for They Live, though I do think that John Carpenter is a big fan of Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well because you can see elements of this film the 78 version in they live also the thing and even yeah. in in the mouth of madness um there's a, a body snatchers vibe um but yeah i'm going for they live because it will be part of a perfect alien invasion double bill if you pair it with uh, a body snatchers um it's anti-reagan it's anti-capitalist and it's a creepy masterpiece i love they live so much and I'm not going to say anything else about it because either you've seen it, uh, in which case this is quite boring for you, or you haven't, <laughs> and I might spoil it. So just go watch John Carpenter's They Live. It's fucking great. It's an amazing film. It really is. Dan, what's first from you? So I went with the idea of building a world of the other where mm. you start to feel like people who should be at best your allies or at worst ambivalent to you are perhaps out to get you in some way or talking about you behind your back or, or have some ulterior motive to their actions and that immediately drew me to uh, I, I, as i say it out loud i think maybe i've recommended it before because i love it uh from 1989 it's bob balaban's parents which actually does get a very brief name check by kim in the uh 
yeah. in in the in the the conversation. Um, it's ostensibly uh, about a child, a young boy, who starts to believe that his parents, uh, direct uh, played by Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt, are um, are not all they appear to be. That they're up to something. Uh, like Spielberg's E.T., uh, it's all shot from the eyeline of a child putting mm. you down there in his world, his experience. But it goes uh, a little further than E.T. with that, in that the dialogue of the adults is deliberately stilted to sound confusing and alien, as it would to a child who doesn't really understand the world of adults. And uh, yeah, and it's super, super stylish. Uh, it's set in the 50s. The soundtrack was done by Paris Press Prado. It's very, very uh, sort of like garishly 50s in a in an almost uh, John Watersy way, but with that, uh, you know, less shit. Whoa, whoa, whoa And whoa, whoa, I'm not whoa. saying he's shit. I'm okay. saying there is less shit in the film okay. <laughs> than you would expect reasonably from a John Waters picture. Okay. Oh, right. Uh, less yeah, actual Less shit, actual fecal yeah. matter, got yes. It, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, that is fair. <laughs> There's a there's a shot in uh, Parents, and if I have recommended this uh, on the podcast before, that I've probably mentioned this shot before because it is it has lived with me since the first time I watched that movie. The family have moved to a new home. The kids come home from school. There doesn't appear to be anyone else in the house. It's a really long shot from his head height at the back of this long room. There's two exits to the room. Uh, there's a basement and there's a door uh, on the left of there's basement to his right and a door to his left and uh, Randy Quaid comes up from the basement and sort of blocks his exit on the right and says oh you're home early and he says oh it's that's when uh, it's just when school ends and Mary Beth Hurt uh, comes back uh, comes into shot from the behind the camera on the left she has two wine glasses held behind her back hiding the fact that they were having a drink from the sun uh, and she says oh well we'll have to remember that and you get this amazing moment where he's sort of trapped in the middle by their t- their emergence onto screen uh it's a really beautiful shot it's it's a it's a little rough around the edges in some places uh but balaban absolutely smashes it it's a great film if you haven't seen it it's available on uh vestron collector series blu-ray in the states uh i think it's probably available vod in the uk yeah yeah great uh yeah you love that film so much so um there was no way in hell i was gonna pick parents um and in fact my next choice there's no way in hell that you would ever pick this film um, to pair with this film. So uh, I think we're on safe ground. Uh, I'm going for Taxi Driver. Um, Now, I know this is a bit of an odd one, but uh, it was shot by the same DOP as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Michael Chapman. And Taxi Driver has that kind of claustrophobic feel that Body Snatchers has. It also has that sense of paranoia communicated through quite abstract visuals so i really do feel like if you combined they live with taxi driver you would get body snatchers and that is one hell of a triple bill and i know again it's another one of these where oh sam you know why don't you recommend the wizard of oz um or star wars or whatever but there are people out there who haven't seen taxi driver it is quote-unquote an old film it's a quote-unquote classic film and there's someone that you and i know dan who i won't name and shame who hadn't seen taxi driver uh, until a few years ago when we watched it together on the big screen at your house um so there are still people out there who haven't seen it and it is a fucking masterpiece um just like invasion of the body snatchers so there we go taxi driver that's my last pick dan what is your final pick to pair with invasion of the body snatchers 
Well, so of my remaining choices, I'm going to choose <laughs> a TV miniseries from 1981. Oh, I see how it is. No, that's fine, yeah. actually. That's fine. Yeah, good. Uh, it's, the, it's the BBC Day of the Triffids. Oh, lovely. Lovely uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you've, if you've only seen either the British remake or the American movie, this is, this is not that. This is, the, this is the remake. This is the adaptation of yeah. the Day of the Triffids. Um, directed by Ken Hanam. Uh, it's another plant-based alien invasion. Like Polysnatchers, although for other reasons, it is human or humanoid characters who are often the real threat. Uh, it is unsettling and upsetting and scary in a way that uh, it's it's rare that you get outside of like 12 rated art sci-fi because they have to rely entirely on sort of portents and music and acting there's very little in the way of effects if you don't count like giant fiberglass plots no, <laughs> uh, it's available on dvd in the in the uk really good um and without going into great description of it what was your backup out of interest uh oh it was possession by zalowski Oh, lovely! Yeah, which is you know, it's it's another doppelganger movie, uh, but for very different reasons. Uh, it's another sort of like slightly off-center sci-fi. Uh, it's another film with amazing sound design. Yeah, and my backup was Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers, which was the first Body Snatchers movie I watched, and I've got a soft spot for it. As I love it, Kim uh newman in the discussion which was um yeah a- another thing where it's like well that's going off the recommendation list um <laughs> and also get out as well i feel like yeah i see that yeah yeah uh anyway we're not we're, we've finished this section we're now moving on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks these are films that we've been watching since the last episode that we'd like to recommend dan you just went didn't you so shall i I just went yeah yeah, you go all right okay so for this one i'm not actually going to talk about the film itself because i know this will be a movie that you absolutely hate dan um so (laughs) you can talk about a movie i hate no no because you'll understand why because it's a movie that you hate for that you will hate for very good reasons so i'm not going to go into it um too much film wise but i've got to recommend the release because it's probably my disc of the year in terms of the extras the film is irreversible and the disc is indicators limited edition release and they have collected some absolutely brilliant extras now if you're not a fan of extreme cinema really do avoid this one um it's obviously lost none of its power to overwhelm it's not a film that you kind of become numb to or has aged out of its power if that makes sense it's a movie where the sound design makes you feel sick even before you get to arguably the most disturbing long take in modern film history i don't think there's going to be many people that argue with me about that um it's 10 minutes of absolute hell but I'm not going to talk about the film. I want to talk about the extras uh, and what extras they are. You get a making of documentary that's just under an hour. You get a fantastic audio Q&A at the NFT, which features Monica Bellucci, Vincent Cassell and Gaspar Noe. And that's also just under an hour. There's a Noe masterclass that's 90 minutes long and a wonderful 15-minute video essay from Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who I've mentioned on the pod before. I'm such a fan of her stuff. And, um, yeah, that's called Time Destroys All Things. Um, that was actually the first thing I watched, and it's fucking 
incredible. Um, there's also a commentary from Noe. There's an SFX featurette. There's a short film. It's just an insane release. It is the definitive edition of this film, which many people do hate, including Dan. But I do admire this film for its just pure insane power. And like I say, it's just an incredible release from Indicator. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Irreversible, the Indicator Blu-ray box set, which actually the one thing I haven't mentioned, it also includes the film Cut in chronological order chronological order and the reason i haven't highlighted that is that's a bridge too far for me Um, (laughs) you're not gonna watch it no i will never watch that um i actually disagree with it on moral grounds see Um, i was hoping i was hoping they'd do the film in uh, chronological order and uh motion control uh centralized so all of the radio camera spin was taken (laughs) out yeah, well, exactly. So it's just, yeah, a normal film, full stop. But, just um, a normal, horrible film. Yeah, and, and this is it. Like, I, I, I think the far from being just a gimmick, the kind of, the order it's in is, is part of why this film justifies its existence for me. I think the fact that... I mean, other people have talked about this. I can't remember if it was Commode or someone else, but basically the point that this is the only way this kind of film can have a happy ending, and even that's infused with so much pain. Um, yeah, it's the, it's the Pulp Fiction relineation, isn't it? Yeah, but but specifically with this genre and for this movie... I think that it's really, really, really important that it starts the way it starts and it ends the way it ends. But, you know, I'm not dissing anyone for, for putting it out in that in that version because you know, obviously people are intrigued to see it in that way. But just for me personally, I kind of disagree with it on, on moral grounds. Um, but anyway, we've talked about this film that I wasn't going to talk <laughs> about that, more than enough. That, that's Thank your you moral objection with this film. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I genuinely feel like... Um, it justifies its existence by doing what it does. I don't think it's a gimmick the way it's ordered. And I think it's what it's what kind of infuses it with so much power um, or, or part of what infuses it with so much power and part of why it's lasted as long as it's lasted. Yeah, I, I think that it's it, the, the chronological version is cheaper and more in line with the kind of films that you absolutely hate, Dan, and the films that I absolutely hate as well, actually. The examples of this genre um, that are kind of very cheap and nasty and, and don't have something to say or some sort of yeah. meta exploration of, 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 of the genre, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the order is part of Noe's genius. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. Um, I'm going to say... I'm gonna say Two more things, three more things, three oh, more God. things about the film. Okay. Uh, the first is, uh, I haven't seen it in a great many years, so my opinions of it may have changed somewhat nowadays mm. um, because it's, you know, a male director and the sexual assault in it is used to propel a male narrative. But I don't, based on, only on the last screen, last version of it that I saw, I don't hate this film. It's deeply problematic. It's very horrible, but it's a very, very, very good film. The special effects featurette that is on this disc 
uh, was previously only available on the Canadian, or at least was previously only available with English subtitles on the Canadian DVD because obviously they're bilingual English and French. Um, so they had all the French extra features, but they included the, but they put English subtitles on them. The only other place you could get it was in France and it didn't have English subs. Uh, and also I, I have bought this set. I haven't watched it yet. But I have I've I've bought this to replace the Canadian special edition that I went out of my way to get before. Right. Um, technically, it's a masterclass, and the the presence of that that Noé uh, ninety minute special yeah. feature is is reason enough to get it. Exactly. It's a, it's a horror. It's a horrible fucking film, but it's a very good film. Yeah, exactly. And two very brief things. One, yes, it is a male director. But obviously, Bellucci has, has talked at quite great length about how much control yeah. she had within the scene, which is just insanely, insanely disturbing. So it's Have kind you of, seen... it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, that being conducted in kind of a safe way. But it was. Um, well, do you, have you seen the special effects featurette? I haven't watched that yet, actually, no. So one of the things that's amazing about that is that that one shot scene that we're alluding to mm. is a digital patchwork. Oh, that wow. it's different that pieces stitched incredible. together. That is incredible. All right, I'm, I'm watching that after this. Um, that is absolutely amazing to me. But yeah, again, the, the style and content is is just so powerful. Anyway, 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 um, Dan, take us out of this. <laughs> um, horrendous section of hell uh what have you got to recommend for us well well to balance out they live and taxi driver yes oh yeah <laughs> i'm recommending a film that you will struggle to watch um that's not actually true it's in its entirety on youtube uh or you can spend 50 quid on a laser disc on ebay um, <laughs> there's also a, a box set of the director's work that contains it that's out of print but is available secondhand um it's red spectacles by mamoru Oshii. um i recommended Oshii's angel egg angel's egg uh recently and decided to do a bit more of a dive into his filmography and managed to track down the box set of his three live action films or of three of his live action films i should say so uh ishii uh most famous for ghost in the shell he wrote uh the screenplay for the my personal one of my personal favorite animated films uh Jinro wolf brigade mm -hmm. what i didn't realize until digging into his back catalog is that wolf brigade is the third film in a series um, and he actually directed the first two. And the other two are live action, and they were released in reverse chronological order. <laughs> so the first film in the release, or the last film in the chronology, <laughs> uh, is Mamoru Oshii's Red Spectacles from 1987. I don't really know where to begin with describing this film. It is one of those wonderful artistic movies that absolutely defies description. Um, it starts with a lot of text on screen describing the dissolving of the Cerberus Corps, which are the uh, the sort of the red-eyed robo-soldiers, robo-cops from, uh, from Jinro, if you've seen that. If you haven't, watch it. It's amazing. And, and they've been sort of this police department, this extra super violent police department has been shot down by the Japanese government and some of the police are resisting closure so uh the the other police and uh, groups of concerned civilians are going up against these cops now uh without their mech suits uh to try and take them down and we join them in a warehouse two of them have been wounded one of them is okay 
uh, they're like, you go, save yourself, save yourself. Uh, we'll, we, you know, we'll meet up again in, in however many years. Just get out of here. And he leaves. Uh, and that's when the film stops being in colour and stops being what you and I would think of as a normal film. Hey. <laughs> the rest of the film is a sort of series of like waking nightmare tableaus table vivant all over the place there's whole sequences that are played out as though you're sitting in a theater watching the actors on stage the narrative is super like fucking fractured there's a lot of cat imagery it occasionally breaks into quite scatological slapstick it's very very philosophical in its dialogue um there's a fight with two men in a toilet where one of them punches the other one so hard all his clothes come off <laughs> uh, there's several sequences there's an amazing moment where our guy, he, he's returned back to the, the city uh, like several years after the events of the prologue. And uh, he is basically being chased by the government to try and find out where the remaining one of these uh, Cerberus Corps like mech suits is. And he's he's caught and he's, and he's tortured and he keeps on escaping and keeps on being recaptured. Um, and at one point he escapes and he makes it back to his apartment and he's freaking out in the apartment. And the camera pulls back and you see the set of the apartment just in a studio. <laughs> Nice. Uh, and he like breaks through the wall and finds a car and gets in the car and drives away. And then the camera pulls back and you see that the car is just like in a studio with a rain machine over it and light sweeping across it. And it, it's always sort of playing around with your expectations of what's narrative and what's real. And, and within that, it's playing with the ideas of like that sort of Rashomon-esque, like the validity of recollection, uh, the subjectivity of truth in any like historical context. But yeah, it's super weird. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I love sounds, it. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, no, I love the sound of that. Brilliant. Um, good stuff. Well, to balance out They Live and Taxi Driver, I am going to recommend something that most people listening to this definitely haven't seen, even though it is an Arrow Academy release. I finally picked up Eight Hours Don't Make a Day this fortnight, which was 25 quid on Amazon. I don't know if it still is, but uh, absolute bargain. It's basically five feature-length films about how workers can unite to take down a capitalist system, uh, which is also one of the sweetest, most life-affirming and most optimistic series I've ever seen. That it comes from Rainer Werner Fassbinder is absolutely nuts. Um, it's the first uplifting project I've ever seen from Fassbinder. Uh, it was a <laughs> joy from start to finish. Um, and that tone actually exists kind of by accident because the series was cancelled by the German broadcaster who was showing it monthly um, after the fifth episode. It was supposed to run to eight episodes, but they cancelled it after the fifth because of complaints from the right wing. And so there were darker episodes to come. One of the episodes, they're actually described on the disc, so you don't kind of miss out too much. Um, but yeah, one of one of the future episodes had an insanely dark <laughs> moment in it, um, which would have been kind of more Fassbinder-esque if it had played out. Um, but those right-wing dolts, those idiots, accidentally created a triumphant love letter to socialist ideals, um, which is so kind of perfectly formed as a narrative it feels intentional like these five episodes work as a perfect story and so those idiots who, who wanted to silence um the left kind of shot themselves in the foot basically because this beautiful thing went out without a 
hint of darkness in it. Um, well, all right, there's a tiny bit. Like there's one character who who is is a bit nasty, but even he has kind of a redemptive moment um, without getting into spoilers. Um, but yeah, it's a truly amazing box set. You know, they're all feature length these episodes, and they're all such a fucking joy. Just amazing characters played by amazing actors with a wonderful, wonderful message that lays out point by point what we need to do in order to take the fuckers down. (laughs) So, um, yeah, eight hours don't make a day. Please, please, please pick this one up purely because you'll love it. Yeah, a high, high, high recommendation from me. Right, that's it, isn't it, Dan? No, Ex- I've got another one. Oh, bollocks. I haven't done that for ages. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, got, I was lost in a reverie. Uh, eight hours don't make a day. What, what's your next recommendation? Uh, I'll, keep it, I'll keep it brief. It's Homicide by David Mamet. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it's his third picture. It's available for free on Prime in the UK. Uh, it's a movie about racism in America in general, anti-Semitism in particular as a sort of... A, a, a subset of racism, particularly within the police force. Joe Mantegna, is that how you pronounce his name? Uh-huh. Is uh, absolutely on top form. I feel like he was, like he's a better actor than his career, like allowed him to be. He ended up, you know, playing a lot of mooks and like comedy uh, villains in things like, uh, is he, was he in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead? Uh, no, Baby's Day Out, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, just like, you know, fuff. But he's great in it. Uh, William H. Macy, uh, who suffered a similar thing, although I think gets a little bit more respect these days, but but still like playing a slightly more hard-nosed little pit bull of a man uh, in that. Um, yeah, um, Montaigne's character is uh, like ignoring his police duty, to chase glory and the big prize uh, there's even a little conversation about like no this is true police work we go in we bust the guy we put our feet up you know that's that's police but then he is forced to examine his priorities not just within the police but within his life uh, and you know it's mamet it's beautifully written the dialogue's great uh, and it's yeah it's just really worth watching although he's slightly disowned it now <laughs> why why has he disowned it well, I can't say without revealing the ending. Oh, but, I see. Yeah, let's say it's got something to do with the presence of a conspiracy theory in the movie. Oh, no. That, that he feels uh, plays into the hands of some people. God damn it. God damn it. Always comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, and weirdly, you know, talking a full circle, uh, I think it would make a good double bill with a Sydney Lumet movie um, that I've recommended in the past, Q&A. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that'll make quite a nice double bill. And uh, Lumet obviously disowned the television version of that. Uh, he was credited as Alan Smithy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're supposed to be keeping this um, shorter. And they worked together that, on the so. verdict, didn't they? Sorry. Um, yeah, they they did. Right. <laughs> there you go. Spiral. <laughs> <laughs> um, Just chat about films for twenty hours. Yeah, I, I wish. But instead, we're going to go into extra features, extra features, extra features. Extra features. And the good well, news is there are we, no we, extra features. We had there? loads, but we've run long, so we'll have to cut them. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. God, we yeah. had interviews with Sydney Lumet. We had interviews with uh, William H. Fassbender. Macy. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, unfortunately, you will have to translate the German, but we'll just throw that in next time. Okay, here we go. Social media. Dan, how can people follow you? 
Uh, I'm at 13fingerfx on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I share a lot of special effectsy bits uh, and occasionally opine about the state of Britain. Yay. Um, and I am not going to ask you to follow any social media bits this time, but I am going to ask you to go to my Twitter account, at Sam Ashurst. I don't know if it will still be running when this goes live, but you may have noticed a bit of awkward foreshadowing at the start of this episode where I said I'm nominated for three shockies, or a little more flesh, two is nominated for three shockies, I should say. Um, and that is, uh, uh, there are awards that are picked by a panel, but are voted for by the audience. Um, if there is anyone listening to this who did watch A Little More Flesh 2 at the Soho Horror Festival and, and isn't aware that you can vote for me uh, as Best Director uh, or you can vote for my lead actress, uh, Harley D, who's up for Best Lead Performance or you can vote for our collective work because the film's also up for Scariest Film. So I would be very, very grateful if you would vote for any of those or all of them or, you know, whatever, whatever takes your fancy. Uh, God, it, it, I, it, I'm yeah. For someone who <laughs> normally likes singing their own praises in a slightly tongue in cheek way, it's quite awkward, isn't it? Asking people to vote for you in a in a prize thing. But that's the end of that. <laughs> I'm going to stop saying that now. Uh, Dan, say something else about something else, please. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one said, <laughs> do my catchphrase. They just said, <laughs> say something about something. Something about something. Oh, that, this was your opportunity I've, to I've, say my, anything. My, my brain has turned off. I figured we were on the, we're on the home stretch. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, uh, next time we are doing the uh, Sartana box set um yes five amazing uh westerns and it's our first western so i'm very excited about that uh it's my choice for next fortnight so please tune in then Uh, so are we are we we doing all of them sam or are we just doing the first one we're just going to do the first one but i think we both know them all well enough to to comment on all of them but um we are going to focus on the first one but um please do pick up that box set because um it's a treat it's a treat they're all fucking amazing and i think this this basically counts as a shared choice really doesn't it like yeah yeah yeah. um, we both love those movies so uh, do you do you like the man with no name do you like capes you're in (laughs) yeah do you like playing cards magic Um, tricks do you like dracula yeah, imagine all... if Dracula, Gambit and Clint Eastwood had a baby. There you go. And he was hungry for revenge. Amazing. Uh, and on that absolutely brilliant note, we are going to say thank you so much for listening and we promise to be more professional next time. Next time. Bye-bye. Bye.